This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We read from God's Word this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is the familiar sermon of Jesus Christ called the Sermon on the Mount. We read the second part of that sermon where Jesus speaks to the topic of swearing. We begin our reading in verse 27. Verse 27. 27 through 32 has Jesus speaking about the seventh commandment in marriage. Related to the speaking of or the swearing of vows and oaths, marriage includes that. The swearing of such vows and the keeping of such vows. So we include that in the scripture reading and we read through the end of the chapter, verse 48. Matthew 5, verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, yea, yea. Nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, 
go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. We read that far in God's holy and inspired Word. On the basis of that portion of Scripture and all of God's Word, we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism. And today we have its instruction in Lord's Day 37 that we consider. Lord's Day 37 is a further explanation of the third commandment which we are to obey in thanksgiving or gratitude to God for so great a salvation. The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. We considered the commandment as such last week. In Lord's Day 37, an application of that commandment regarding swearing an oath or a vow. May we then swear religiously by the name of God. Yes, either when the magistrates demand it of the subjects, or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's Word and therefore was justly used by the saints, both in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or any other creatures. No, for a lawful oath is calling upon God, as the only one who knows the heart, that He will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely, which honor is due to no creature. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we consider the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation on the basis of Scripture this morning on swearing. Connected to this Lord's Day is some interesting and significant Reformed or Reformation church history. There were two, two controversies and questions about swearing an oath or a vow that arose during the time of the 16th century Reformation. The first had to do with a vow unto sin. The question was, what if someone vowed to do something sinful? In the Bible, we might think of Judge Jephthah. What if Jephthah's vow was indeed 
that if God gave him the victory, then he would sacrifice as a burnt offering the first thing that came out of his house. As you know the story, his daughter came forth from his house. And I know there is a good explanation of Judges 11 that Jephthah did not kill his daughter in a burnt offering, but dedicated his daughter as a living sacrifice instead. He did not end up killing her. But the question is, what if his vow was indeed to kill her? Should he have kept his vow and gone through with it? In Reformation church history, the question was this, specifically if a priest, for example, in the Roman Catholic church had vowed to throughout his life, his whole life, continue to perform idolatrous ceremonies, as was the case in that church. Should he keep that vow after his conversion to reform biblical Christianity? Or if a nun or a monk had sworn that they would for their lifetime be celibate, a sinful vow after conversion to true biblical Christianity, should they continue to keep that vow to sin? The reformers answered, no, the vow itself was sinful. The vow to sin was wrong, but it would compound the sin. It would add to the sin if you kept that vow. So there was a time to break a vow when it was to add more sin to the sin itself of a vow to sin. A second question faced by the Reformed Church, which is the main question behind Lord's Day 37, was the controversy with the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists, during the time of the Reformation, argued that we should not make vows at all. The Anabaptists forbade swearing altogether and they used a passage like the one that we read this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 34. When Jesus says there, I say unto you, swear not at all. The Anabaptists interpret that passage to say that we may not swear at any moment, in any part of our life, at any time. An absolute forbidding of all swearing of vows and oaths. The Reformers answered the Anabaptists with the same arguments that we find in Lord's Day 37. They pointed out how the Anabaptists were looking at just one or two texts in God's Word without looking at their contacts. They showed that many of God's people both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in their faithfulness to God, swore vows and kept those vows as part of their worship to the glory of God. May we then swear oaths and vows in the name of God? The answer is yes, against the Anabaptists. Those are two historical controversies. Important points and truths were drawn from those controversies. 
And you might ask this morning, was that relevant to the past and not really relevant today? And I exhort you to consider this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 37, and the topic of swearing religiously, vows and oaths, that this is to be considered carefully because it is a relevant and important topic for today also. It is not out of date. It is not only important to the people of Jesus' time and to the time of the Reformation, but today. Today many swear without a thought. You hear it at work. As you come in contact with people outside the church as well as those inside the church. There are unfaithful politicians who place their hand on the Scriptures and swear deceptively. In the courthouses all around, men and women swear to tell the truth without any intention of doing so. Vows are spoken at marriages with smirks on their faces. Baptismal vows are spoken by parents and then quickly forgotten the day after. Vows of a new and holy life are spoken by young people at confession of faith and then thrown aside on the weekend. Office bearers swear to be faithful in office, to earnestly defend the truth of God's Word, and then are lax in their responsibility. On the basis of God's Word, the third commandment comes and its application to swearing to guide us, to guide us in a life of thankfulness, that is, a life of reverential swearing and keeping of our vows. First, we consider what is permitted. Second, what is prohibited. And then finally, that it is punished when we swear falsely and irreverently. The Catechism asks the question, may we or are we permitted to swear religiously by the name of God? And you see the clear answer against the Anabaptists, yes, yes, we may. Not all the time, according to our women fancy, but there are appropriate times to swear. Before we delve into when those times are, let us understand what Swearing is. The Catechism gives us a definition of swearing in answer 102. A lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart that He will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely. Included in that definition of swearing an oath or speaking a vow are three elements that we must remember. These three elements must be remembered, especially because when someone swears, he often does not speak explicitly about each of these elements, and yet they are there. They are essential and part of what it means to swear. Remember, first of all, that the basic element of swearing is a prayer. That might strike you as odd at first, but notice the biblical language that the catechism uses to describe what 
an oath or a vow is. It is to call upon God. If you search the Scriptures and you look up that language of calling upon God or calling upon His name, that is an expression to describe prayer. When the saints called upon God's name to bring their petitions or called upon God's name to give thanks and praise to Him, they were praying to Him. To swear an oath or a vow is to look up, children, and to speak to God a prayer. It is an act of worship. So that even if you were to stand before a congregation, for example, and make a vow, or if you were to stand before your bride or your groom, your husband-to-be at marriage and to make a vow, and there were other people around and people were listening to you, or if you were to stand in a courtroom before a judge and they heard your vow, your swearing of a vow or an oath is not primarily to any of those people. It's in their hearing. But it's first of all to God. Calling upon His name which helps us make sense of the last phrase of Lord's Day 37, which honor is due to no creature. You don't swear by the name of heaven, as we read in Matthew 5, or by the name of earth, anything on this earth, or by the city of Jerusalem, or by your own head. You don't swear by some saint, as the Catechism points out, or your mother's grave, because none of those things are God. It's a first commandment issue. When you pray, you only pray to God, or else you are giving honor to someone other than God, idolatry. And so also when you swear, you swear only by the name of God. Because swearing is calling upon God. That's the first element of a vow or an oath. The second element has to do with the content of that prayer. It is to call upon God to examine your heart as to the truth of the matter. Calling upon God, the Catechism says, is the only one who knows the heart that He will bear witness to the truth. You do what David does in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Bear witness, the catechism says, to the truth. When you swear when, or when anybody else swears, he or she is asking God in prayer to examine my heart as to whether I am telling the truth. Even if that person does not explicitly say those words, to swear is to do this. Here is where we can distinguish between the terms oath and vow. They're often used synonymously and may be used as such, but the oath is broader. The oath is broad, more broadly asking God to witness to whether I am telling the truth. It's more general. It is asking God to examine the heart if I'm telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 
So for example, at baptism, when parents make their baptismal vows, they do swear what is called an oath. When they say, we acknowledge the doctrines contained in the Old and New Testament and in the articles of the Christian faith, and which is taught here in this Christian church to be the true and complete doctrine of salvation. What they are saying and swearing an oath is that I am telling the truth when I say I hold to these doctrines and that God would examine my heart and bear witness to whether I am telling the truth when I say I believe these things. A vow is narrower. It's more specific. While the oath is generally that I am telling the truth, a vow as regards to a promise of something I will do in the future, something I will give in the future. And so to illustrate, parents at baptism not only swear an oath, but they also take a vow that they will do something. They will instruct and bring up their children according to the aforesaid doctrine to the utmost of their power. A vow is about something you will do in the future. Whether you swear an oath or take a vow, you're calling upon God to bear witness as to whether you are telling the truth. Which brings us to the third element of swearing. It is to tell God or ask God to punish me if I lie. And punish me if I swear falsely. That's part of the prayer of a vow or an oath. That this God who is the holy God, whose holy name I call upon when I swear, And this God who is so perceptive that He can see into the depths of my heart, that can understand whether I'm lying or not better than any lie detector or technology of today, that this God, having seen whether I'm telling the truth, punish me if I'm not. That's a sharp word, a striking word. I looked it up both in the Latin and the German, which the catechism was originally written in. And the word there is not chastise. There are other words for that. Loving correction. The word there is not even just bring a consequence or judgment, which are more general words that can be for our good, our sanctification. But the word that the catechism intentionally uses is the word punish. That is, to bring wrath, retribution, to pay back injustice for my sin. Which means, it is to call down upon oneself, if I lie, the wrath of God not only in this life, but in the future, in hell. That's how serious a vow is, or an oath is. 
so that even if those elements are not explicitly mentioned, as I said earlier, this is what is included. And when the child of God hears that explanation, those three elements of a vow, he knows he ought not take his vow or any vow lightly. And normally speaking, you shouldn't be swearing. Normally speaking, you should see no need to swear at all. Especially if you're a person who normally speaks the truth. That's what Jesus means when He says in Matthew 5.34, swear not at all. He's condemning the regular swearing of the people of His day. Many in His day, as well as many today, normally don't tell the truth. Their yes or yea is not yea. And their nay is not really nay. When they say yes, they mean no. And when they say no, they mean yes. And so it is that when the general population is used to telling lies, whether from themselves or hearing lies from others, that many find it necessary then in order to persuade another person that they are telling the truth, that they make oaths and swear before others. Stop, Jesus is saying. Swear not at all, but rather, verse 37, let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. If that is so, then you will see no need to swear normally in your life. Simply tell the truth. More than that, multiplication of that, Jesus says, these things come of evil. That is the evil one. Normally a believer should not be swearing oaths. And yet that does not mean that they are altogether forbidden. Catechism explains instances when there is good reason. Two reasons mainly. First, when it is demanded or required by a legitimate authority. And secondly, when it is necessary for the glory of God and the safety of the neighbor. Demanded or required and necessary. We're permitted to swear when it is demanded of a legitimate authority. The catechism specifies the authority of the magistrates, which is the civil government. When the magistrates demand it of the subjects, if we have to come before a court of law, and it is required of us, to swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. We may not only, but we must honor authority and swear before God to do so. And then, of course, having done so, we better tell the truth. Another authority is the church. The church also is given the authority of God to call upon you. The church leaders may, in investigating charges of sin, ask you to take a vow or an oath, put you under oath even, and have you swear that you are telling the truth when you explain whether or not you have sinned that is proper 
They don't do that lightly. But they may do that for the good, the glory of God, to confirm fidelity and truth, as the Catechism says. In Matthew 26, verse 63, toward the end of Jesus' life, we see Jesus Himself being put under oath. And Jesus Himself, not putting that oath aside, but speaking under oath. The high priest answered and said to Him, Jesus, who had it up to this point been silent, the high priest said, I adjure thee, which means I put you under oath. I adjure thee by the name of the living God that thou tell us or testify here in this court, in this consistory room we may say, whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus did not refuse to take on what they required. But in taking on this oath, Jesus said, Thou hast said, meaning I am indeed the Son of God. He spoke under oath. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Today also the church may place a person under oath and God's people may, even must, as Jesus Himself, take those oaths and speak the truth before God. We swear when it is demanded of us, a second reason the Catechism explains for swearing oaths or taking vows is when it is necessary. Necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. When we hear the word necessary, that does not mean whenever we feel like it's necessary. But rather, there are two explanations for when it is necessary. To confirm fidelity and truth for the glory of God and the safety of the neighbor. And there are many examples in the Bible. i give you just a couple. First is in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 31. Paul there in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 31 is defending his character and his ministry. Many false teachers, as you know, in the church of Corinth were attacking Paul's character and thereby not only attacking Paul personally, but attacking the very gospel that Paul was preaching. It was the false teacher's way of compromising the gospel. And so Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11.31, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. He says that in the context of explaining that he is indeed the true apostle of Jesus Christ, faithful in the ministry of the gospel. He swears before God. He did not do that for his own personal benefit so that the people at Corinth would like him. But he saw it as necessary for the sake of the Gospel, for the glory of God, that the church in Corinth would hold on to the Gospel for their spiritual safety, he swore. That's 2 Corinthians 11. And Paul 
would do that repeatedly through the New Testament. He would write those oaths even in letters to the churches. Another example is in the Old Testament in Isaiah 65, verse 16. Isaiah 65, verse 16 is a prophecy. It's a prophecy of Isaiah regarding the New Testament church. And Isaiah there speaks of what the New Testament church would do in worship to God. That he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself and the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former or the past troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from mine eyes. What Isaiah is doing there is he's predicting what the church, this church, would be doing in worship of God. What is proper worship or glory to God? Isaiah explains, they will do this. They will swear in the earth by the God of truth. Will do so to confirm truth and fidelity for His honor. The Scripture shows us that we may at times swear oaths and vows. It is permitted. It is even required. It is necessary for the glory of God. Which brings us to the negative. God prohibits false swearing and rash swearing. Those are the two negatives. God prohibits False swearing and rash swearing. In order to make that applicable, let me remind you of some of the vows and oaths that many of you have sworn and will swear before God. Keep those two negatives, prohibitions in your mind. False swearing and rash swearing. That may not be when you swear your vows at baptism, parents. For the glory of God and the spiritual safety of God's covenant children, for their spiritual safety, parents are to swear a vow at baptism. Fathers, fathers, I speak to you as the head of your household. You who lead your wives. Fathers who bring your wives and that child to the front of church and have them baptized, your children baptized. You are the head. You are the leader in swearing such a vow. The responsibility is on you. Men. Fathers, you vowed that you would bring her, you would bring him up in that aforesaid doctrine, causing that child to be instructed therein to the utmost of your power. I address you not only because you are the first and foremost responsible, but also because, fathers, in our day and age and even in the church, there is a great lack of faithful men who take responsibility and fulfill their vows. Men, fathers, fathers-to-be even, young men, 
You may not leave the fulfilling of this baptismal vow to your wife. You may not take a hands-off approach. You may not leave it up to the school. Though your wife and the schools are there to help you, it is your duty. Fathers, your hearts must be turned to your sons and your daughters as you swore. Nurturing them, that is, having a relationship with your sons and your daughters. Showing the tender love of God the Father to them. They must know you. They must see you. You may not be too busy with your work or with your phone or even with church stuff so that they do not see you and they do not know you and they do not see the reflection of God the Father in you. You must lead them in devotions. You must show them the truth of God's Word. You vowed to this. You called upon God's name that He would look into your heart and testify to the truth that you spoke at baptism and that He would punish you if you do not. And so on this Father's Day, may fathers renew their efforts empowered by the Spirit of God to keep their vows and thankfulness to their Heavenly Father. Secondly, for the glory of God and the spiritual safety of the other members, you have made confession of faith. Not falsely, I pray, or rashly. To adhere or stick to the doctrine and Scripture and our confessions. And then sticking to that doctrine, you who have made confession of faith or look to make confession of faith, you swear to lead a new and godly life that is a life of sanctification that even progresses. You seek progression in that. A new godly life. And to submit to church government and discipline. You haven't for- forgotten that vow, have you? You who have made confession of faith a long time ago. The length of time since you made that vow does not erase it or make it any less important. There should be no bickering and complaining about church government and their decisions. There should be no no dishonor of the offices. While you may protest in your office of believer, You must do so with utmost respect. You have sworn that at your confession of faith. If you are placed under discipline, you have vowed, remember, to submit to discipline. And impenitence under discipline is not only the breaking of other commandments, but it is the breaking of your vow. In the punishment of God, you are calling upon yourself as long as you break that vow and continue in it. You break your vow when you ask for your papers instead of submitting to discipline. And adults, I remind you of your vow 
even if you meet a very attractive girl or guy that you want to have a, a relationship with, this vow of confession of faith comes first. You are to stick or adhere to this doctrine, this Word of God, even before you stick or adhere to any, any other person that is attractive to you even. Your vow at confession of faith is such that even if your friends are out not keeping their vows, living an unholy life with the world, you are not to follow them. You have vowed to live a holy life consistent with God's Word. For the glory of God and His Gospel, His Gospel of an unbreakable covenant, you have vowed on your wedding day Husbands and wives, on your wedding day, some more recent, others many years ago, on your wedding day, till death do us part. Remember that vow, husbands and wives. You vowed not only to stick with each other within the four walls of your house, legally married. Yes, that's part of it. That's why we hold, or one of the reasons we hold, the view of an unbreakable bond of marriage. And Jesus forbids divorce except for fornication and not remarrying after divorce. It's part of keeping your vow. But more, your vow included more than sticking with each other. For husbands, it was to Love her faithfully. Remember? To protect her. To cherish her. To care for her spiritually with the Word. To lead her. To live as one flesh with her. Close to her. Really, to strive to be near to her as Christ is near to His church. And wives, to submit to Him. To place yourself under His authority, even if it's difficult. To be obedient in all lawful things. To serve, to help Him in His work and not usurp His authority. Never to leave Him or forsake Him. Your vow, husbands and wives, your vow is not conditional. It's not conditioned upon whether your loved one keeps his vow or her vow. Only then I will keep mine. No. Or your vow is unconditional just as God's vow is unconditional towards us. Take not His name in vain. Keep your marriage vows. For the glory of God and the safety of His flock, you elders, deacons, and I as your minister have sworn to be faithful office bearers. To discharge our office faithfully. Part of that is, remember, to walk in all godliness, to adorn the doctrine and the office, to adorn it with a godly life, to submit, yes, even as office bearers, to submit to the admonition of the church if we are remiss in our duty, to be diligent to teach and faithfully to defend the aforesaid doctrine 
either directly or indirectly. To reject all errors that militate against this doctrine and exert ourselves. Exert ourselves in keeping the church free from such errors. Willing even to comply with a further explanation of our sentiments. Willing to submit to an examination if necessary, if suspicions arise. Brethren, for the glory of God and the safety of the sheep, we have sworn such things. Keep your vows. You're sometimes called to do very difficult work without thanks, even work that might be unpopular, and usually criticize, if not to your face, behind your back. You are not to fear man. Your vow is to God. Fear Him. For His glory. For the safety of this church. False swearing is obvious. It is to take any of these vows that I've mentioned, or any vow besides, and not to keep those vows. What is particularly evil is when men and women have absolutely no intention of keeping their vow at the moment that they are swearing, such as Not only false swearing, it is hypocritical swearing. That was what was going on in Jesus' day. The very vow that was intended to confirm truth was used as a way to deceive. In order to ease their conscience, the Jews of Jesus' day would not use God's name explicitly. They would swear by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or their own head, or any other thing. They thought that since they swore by other things, they had found a loophole in making people believe them since they used the language of swearing, but not really being guilty of taking God's name in vain. And so Jesus comes here in in Matthew chapter 5 and says, Heaven is God's throne. Earth is God's footstool. Jerusalem is the city of the King, that is, of the Messiah. And His point is, Even if you do not explicitly use God's name, when you swear, you take God's name. And you call upon yourself punishment from that God when you swear falsely. Such false vows to deceive are even worse. They're the worst forms of breaking God's third commandment. False swearing is prohibited And rash swearing, you know what that is. That which is done without a thought, with very little consideration, flippantly, quickly, or even for the sake of superstition. That can be done in an official setting, in a wedding, at baptism, at confession of faith. You do it just because everyone else does it. That is rash, flippant swearing. It can be done in an informal setting. And people simply say off the cuff, I swear. 
Such is to take God's name in vain. And against all those who take God's name with false swearing and rash swearing, you know what the third commandment says. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Or God will hold you guilty. Even more serious within the very vow or the oath, remember? You have taken God's name and called upon yourself the punishment of God. That's serious. To be held guilty and punished now and forever in hell. And then as God's people examine themselves and recognize not only the great degree of sin that many commit in this world, you can see in your own heart how you have sinned in this way as well. Even if it can be said about you, you as parents have been faithful in keeping your baptismal vows, or you as office bearers and husbands and wives, and you as people of God who have made confession of faith, of you, how you have faithfully kept your vows, yet you know, and I do too, that has not been done perfectly. To some extent, we have all, each one of us, broken our vows. Not taking them as seriously or sincerely as we should, lightly, rather. We have not proceeded with great care to do what we have said we would do. If salvation were dependent on your vow and oath taking and keeping, you would be doomed. So we go back to the truth of gracious salvation. Salvation does not depend on your oath-keeping, but rather depends on God's oath-keeping. On God's promises. And His swearing of an oath to you, His people. For His elect people, He has established what we call a covenant. And in establishing that covenant, that friendship with us as people, He makes promises. Hebrews 6, verse 13, God made promise to Abraham, but more. Because He could swear by no greater, He swore by Himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Hebrews 6, verse 17. God speaks. He has spoken and He does speak again this morning to us as people with His Word. It reminds us of His promises. And with the promise... It reminds us of His oath. He didn't have to make an oath, 
but he makes an oath even. Blessing, I will bless thee. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I forgive thee. I give thee eternal life. I work all things for your advantage. I bring you to glory. And the God who cannot lie, the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says, assures us with these two immutable things, a promise and an oath on top of it. By mine own name, God says, I will hold myself accountable. And even I will bring the punishment upon myself for the breaking of my oath. And you know, the only way, the only way that He could keep that oath for us sinful people who throw ourselves to hell with our sin, Jesus Christ. God Himself came while remaining the God of truth. He took on our human nature so that He might represent us. And He kept His oath. He spoke only truth. He vowed to save us. And did did He save us? Yes, He did. He obeyed the law perfectly, including the third commandment. When He swore, His yes was yes and His nay was nay. He always spoke truth. Under oath and not under oath. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Psalm 15. Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that speaketh the truth in his heart. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. Psalm 15. That's first of all a prophecy of Jesus Christ. He sweareth has sworn to save us, and that to His own hurt at the cross. He suffered for our guiltiness. He suffered for our oath-breaking. And in Him, therefore, all the promises of God are yea and amen. And you who believe in this truth, you who believe in this oath-keeping God, His promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. You respond, a true believer responds, not by going forth with rash and false swearing, as though it doesn't matter whether you keep your vow. But stirred by the gospel in your heart, with gratitude to God, you want to. You want to speak truth. You want to take His name reverently and with fear. You desire out of thanks to swear by His name only when it is required of you to confirm His truth and fidelity to the glory of Him, to the safety of your neighbor. For you want to reflect, do you not, 
the God of truth. The beauty of this oath-keeping God. With that gratitude, may God's people keep their vows. Amen. Let's pray. O God, Thy name is glorious, worthy to be praised. Forgive us. Forgive us for all of our sins against Thy law. Drive us to Jesus Christ to see in Him our full salvation and increase within us a thankfulness to take Thy name even in vow, in our vows and oaths, reverently and truthfully, for Thy glory. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.